Welcome back to the Red Fern Book Review. And I am here today with my friend Miriam, who happens to be an editor and speak multiple languages. And I um, recently read, actually about a year ago, I read a really great book. Um, and it was it's a French book that's been translated into English called Men the Living. And I'm not sure how to pronounce the author's name, so I'm going to ask Miriam about that. Um, but it, it was excellent. And it got me thinking, because I could tell when I read this book, um, usually when I read a book that's been translated, it's more plot-driven for me, and the language is a little bit stilted. But this language was very fluid and I just got to thinking a lot about translation and what that means and what it is and what it isn't. And so that's why I've asked um, Miriam to join today. And she's also going to talk about another book by Ian McEwen called Machines Like Me that um, divided, actually divided up her book club a little bit. Um, but before we get to that, um, we're going to talk about a couple of things that Miriam's enjoying listening to and watching. And so I just wanted to welcome and say hello, Miriam. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm well. Thanks for having me. This is actually exciting because I've known you for more than 20 years, and I think it's the first time that we actually carve out some time to talk about books, even though we're both obsessed with reading. It's true. That's that is true. insane. Like we, we'll meet and we'll talk about our careers. We'll talk about our children. We've never actually sat down and taking this much time to talk about books. Oh, that's and so, that's insane to me. <laughs> that's really interesting. I just guess we just take that for granted. And, I know. And uh, we don't live near each other or by Vancouver standards because people in Vancouver tend to not travel far to see each other. And so when we do see each other, we've traveled half an hour. And so we've made this big effort and we, yeah, we just don't talk about it. We just much. don't do that. Yeah, I know you're over the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Miriam and I used to be reporters together downtown at Business in Vancouver for those in the know BIV. And what, Miriam, what was your beat? What, what did you cover? I can't remember. So I started with, um, marketing, uh, and then, because that was tied to sort of what I had studied before. So that was a natural. Yeah. And then I really specialized in high tech and biotech and okay. I absolutely loved that beat. That's right. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so let's talk about the books. There's, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I've been actually, the second I picked this up, I've been wanting to talk with Miriam about it. And um, I'll say how this came to be. Uh, this was a book club selection for my book club, and we were looking for a story. Um, we were kind of in a little bit of a rut reading just mainly often Canadian literature, sometimes American, but not really expanding. And this was before the pandemic, so little did we know. But um, we were looking for something that would just give us a different perspective. And so we found this book. And um, I'll say that every single person in my book club loved it. And that may be the first time ever. So that just says a little bit about this book. But I'm just going to give a little brief synopsis. And what it is, it's um, called The Men, the Living. Miriam, step in. How do you pronounce this author's name? Okay, I would say Mélis de Carangal. Okay. Or Carangal, depending on <laughs> <That sounds> which. <laughs> 
That sounds good. Okay, I'll t- I'll, that sounds good to me. Anyway, um, what it's about, it's about um, organ transplant. And it's about a young surfer who's 20 years old who unexpectedly dies in an accident. accident. His name is Simon Limbo. And his parents have to make the wrenching decision to um, whether or not to donate his heart. You know, ultimately, that's going to be the decision. Otherwise, there really wouldn't be a book. Um, but ultimately, that happens. That but the beginning is quite emotional. And then it moves into almost the machine of organ donation or the miracle of organ donation, the way I saw it each person playing uh, an important role, the medical staff and everybody who have kind of their backstories, if maybe they were up all night partying or maybe they're sad about something, whatever they're bringing to the table. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of the, that's the, a little bit of a summary. But uh, Miriam, what did you think of the book? Just forget the translation. What did your, what were your thoughts about just the book? In I have to say, I absolutely love the book from start to finish. Yeah. And one of the reasons was that it's one of those rare books where you've got a central story. And obviously the main focus is on the family of this young man who died. Right. But all the characters that are in the periphery have a very clear arc in how they go through this experience, either alone when they're doing their own thing or in relation to how they interact with the other characters. And I thought that it takes a very good writer to be able to do that and not get lost in the story so that it doesn't seem like she's going off in lots of different tangents. It still holds together, but you still get an arc for every single character. And that I found absolutely fascinating that she was able to do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like that, oh, there's that overarching theme. Like you understand it's about organ donation, but you get into. I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I saw it a little bit, a little bit as a thriller in a way because once, once first, there's that kind of, there's a bit of that dread. One thing I brought up with you, which I, I did want to understand. Um, I thought everybody in the beginning, like who they were trying to get um, the family to donate um, this young man's organs, they were very kind of clinical and cold. And I thought maybe it was a cultural thing. And you immediately pointed out, no, it's a medical thing that you felt that it was, this is their job. They've got to make this happen and they've got to find a way to be empathetic. But at the same time, it's really just like, okay, okay. All right, already. We need this heart. Let's go. And how to like, because there's a, there's a deadline. Yeah. And I would agree with that, that it's definitely a medical setting. And if you don't associate the uh, rhythm that that seems to be too quick for the family that's experienced this loss, and you focus on the urgency for the people who are still alive and waiting for those organs and hoping that this will give them a chance to survive then all of a sudden the rhythm of that medical team takes a different color. Yes. That's kind of how I saw it. Like at the beginning, I agree with you. My first reaction was, okay, this is going to be a story about the emotion of the family versus the clinical and very detached approach of the medical system. But then you realize that behind that approach, 
there are real people who are very anxious to find out if they're going to survive or not, if they get one of these organs. So that kind of counterbalanced it for me. That's one thing. But where I think you are correct is that in France, people have a very respectful, almost childlike rapport to their physicians. Oh, okay. It's a little bit like children who are in a classroom will have a certain way to relate to their teachers that is a lot less familiar than it might be in North America. Okay. So the idea that a third grader is going to call its teacher by the first name is unthinkable. Right. And same way you would not, like we would always call, I mean, we share a doctor side story (laughs) who delivered our babies and, um, we would refer to her as Sarah. Yes. Oh, right? yes. Whereas in France, you would not do that. No. You would say Dr. Osler. So I think that was also a cultural context thing. Yeah. Um, that was very clear and probably to the author was very natural. Okay. Yeah. I found that it very, I, I found it too formal for me. I am an emotional person too, on top of being North American, but I just was like, I, I didn't understand that. And then, as you said, once things get underway, I think it was more once the organ leaves. And I also, to be honest, I think just to tell people, if you're unsure to read, if you want to read this, because it sounds like a, a sad story, once the organ leaves the building and goes all the other places, I didn't find it sad. I found it exciting. Um it, it's like, it just sort of gets you thinking in a different way. And I agree with you that it almost has the um, sense of urgency that a thriller does. Like you want to know, are they going to make it? Are they going to get in a traffic jam? Will the organ get there in time? Because they tell you about those timelines and, you know, which order the organs are harvested in so that when they pack them and deliver them, they have time to get there in time so that they arrive intact. So this whole thing shifts from the emotion of the loss to, okay, now I want to know what happens. It's like it becomes a page turner almost, which seems crazy when you think about the topic, but that's how I experienced it, that that phase was like a thriller. Now let's talk about the translation. So I I really felt strongly that there was more to this translation than normal, or first of all, I, her name, the, her name is Jessica Moore, the translator, and she lives in Toronto. Um, but she, her name was on the front of the book, and that I don't believe that's always the case. Like in foreign books, you'll see just the name of the author, and I'm not always cognizant, even if I know it's from Spain or whatever. I, I'm not always aware that there's a translator, but there's that. This book was nominated for the Man Booker International Prize, and I believe Jessica was named in that as well. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think that's right. So explain to me, reading it, you've read the English version. What stood out for you in the translating? And I, I also want to add, um, Miriam has trained, um, she's done training in court translation. So you have done some formal training in translation, and you speak how many languages do you speak? Uh, five, I would say, on paper. Okay, so you know <laughs> more often than others. So you know, Netflix has been great in trying to get me up to speed on some of them. 
Oh my gosh. But so anyway, so w- tell me what your thoughts are on translation and, and, and give us a few examples. of. Okay. So one of the things that stood out of my mind when I took this court interpreting course many moons ago was the difference between a straight translation and an interpreting. Mm-hmm. So, or interpretation, I should say. So in the situation of a courtroom, in that context, you have to make sure that what you end up saying as an interpreter ends up being carbon copy to what the person said in the original language, because the case depends on it. So you can't take liberties at all. So for example, if witness A says, I saw a young man in a royal blue shirt walking up and down the street that morning. And as an interpreter, in the other language, you say, I saw a young man in a navy shirt walking up and down the street. Well, there are two shades of blue that are kind of close, but it makes a very big difference when it comes to the actual case. Right. So you can't take liberties there. Whereas when you're translating or interpreting a literary work, there's more to it than just the accuracy of making one word correspond to another. You're trying to make sure that the poetry of the original work comes across, the emotion of it, the rhythm of it. Is it an intellectual work? Is it something that's very approachable? Is it something that has really deep cultural roots or not? Or is it something that could happen in any city, any culture, any country? So you have all these elements that you're trying to preserve by making decisions on every single word that you're using in the translated work. And that's very difficult to do. And in reading this one, I would agree with you that it almost felt to me like it was somebody who had been given the right to take a story, a plot, and write it in a different language. That, that and I'm probably have... exaggerating, but no, but it, it seems that was my that. first impulse. And I and I and so Miriam did try to get, um, and she will. Maybe we'll do a little update. She's getting um, the French version, but I I just find it hard to believe that it's as well written in French. But I don't know, and and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do a little update once you once you have a chance to look at it. But it is just it's lyrical that you know what it's a lyrical book and how do you do that when you're translating that's could you give a couple of examples in the sure um so one example that's pretty early on in the book there just to set the story this is where the mother marianne goes in to speak with the doctor who was the admitting doctor when her son was taken to the hospital after his accident Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to give too much away in exactly where they're at in that process, but basically she's going into this room with the doctor and she knows what's coming. She just feels it in her gut and they're describing how she feels. And they say that she wishes that under her chair was an, and I quote, oubliette. Now, that word, oubliette, is a French word, 
And it's basically a dungeon. So you've got one entrance that's above you. And if you're thrown in there, you're lost, right? Nobody can see you. They close the lid. You disappear. And so she was feeling like she wanted to find, by some miracle, a trap door so that she could just disappear, so that she doesn't have to face the truth of what she feels in her gut, which is that her son is gone. Now, in French, the word oubliette comes from oublier, which is to forget. So she's almost wanting to hide in a place where she can shut out the reality of what's going on and completely forget about it, have the medical team forget about her so that they can't deliver the news that she knows she's going to get. So they could have translated that word and said she wanted to crawl into a hole or she wanted to fall into a dungeon. They could have found an English word, but she made the choice to keep the French word because when you hear that word in French, oubliette, there is a very strong thought that's associated with it. It's not just the physical whole, but it's trying to forget something. Right. Which you wouldn't get if you use the word dungeon. Right. So dungeon, yes, it means you want to crawl under something. You want to disappear so that they can't find you and deliver the news, but it doesn't have that same impact in terms of describing how she wants herself to be forgotten. She wants this moment to be forgotten. Whereas in oubliette, there is that word forget in it, right? Right. So that's an example where I think she made a choice to not translate it, where she could have. Makes sense. Right? And that's the thing is sometimes when you translate straight from one language to the other, you end up finding a better interpretation of a mood or an idea. And it ends up being more like an interpretation of that mood. And other times you interpret, because if you did a straight translation, you would actually wouldn't get the correct effect. And the reason is that in some languages, certain words are stronger than others. So even though if you take a dictionary, They'll say, you know, apple is pum, pum is apple. Okay, in this case, they have the same weight. It's a descriptor of the fruit and that's it. But in some other cases, you could have a word that's perfectly translated, but has a very different feeling in another language. It may sound fancier in one language than another. It may be more evocative of a culture or not. So you really have to make those choices. And in this case, I think she made the right choice because it adds that little extra layer. Okay, let's talk about, um, uh, anyway, we both recommend this book. So I think you should. I think it's a beautiful book. I think and, it's... Um, yeah, it, it's a great emotional journey. <laughs> um, the, the next book, uh, Miriam mentioned not too long ago, her, her book club read Machines Like Me, and it was Miriam's idea, and it wasn't necessarily a fan favorite for everyone. So give a little synopsis on this book and tell me what you thought of it. Okay. So the book is Machines Like Me, and it's by Ian McEwen, who's an English author, quite popular, actually. But I hadn't heard of this title 
And I was I just, neither. no, and I was just looking for ideas of what I wanted to read. And I quite like, like I was saying before technology and I'm quite fascinated by it and just new discoveries. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't expect Ian McEwen to write something that was so heavily focused on technology, but so I picked it up and basically this story is set in the uh, 1980s in London, but it's a little bit anachronic in the sense that it's in the 80s, but the technology that they have back then in this story is actually quite futuristic. So for example, social media is already ruling everything, which was not the case in the 1980s. Um, And the story focuses on a love triangle that involves a young man named Charlie, who's sort of a drifter, who's not really sure what he wants to do with his life. He's super smart, but he's kind of taking his time because he can. And then he comes into this money and decides to buy an atom. And what it is, is in that, in those days, they had come far uh, along enough with the development of first generation humanoids that you could order an Adam or an Eve as a companion, as an assistant, as whatever you wanted. So he decides, I'm just coming to this cash. I'm going to buy an Adam. And he is quite in love with this young student named Miranda. And the two of them decide that, yes, they're going to do this. They're going to get an Adam and they're each going to uh, program some of it functions so they decide what character traits they like and they program that into adam and they each do it without telling the other one what they've programmed in and then they plug him in charge him up and then this adam comes alive and the story follows what happens to that trio of people okay and the interaction between the humans and this humanoid who has the ability because of, you know, AI machine learning to figure out how human beings react to certain situations, certain ways of talking. And he comes to manipulate the situation a little bit because he has this ability to learn at a very, very rapid rate. So I don't want to say too much because if I don't want to give it all away. But it makes you question a lot of things. Like, A, if you had the choice, would you want to find everything out about a person before you actually took the time to get to know them? That's one thing. Probably wouldn't have very many friends. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. And it also makes you think about what makes a human human, Mm, mm -hmm. right? Is it an ability to be mindful of others? Is it the ability to love? And what does that mean if you can program it into a humanoid? What part of that word is, can only exist in a human being? Or can you actually artificially produce that? 
And also what I found interesting was that um, we often think of technology as a means to an end, mm -hmm. right? Getting more efficient, um, doing things quicker. But this book makes you wonder whether we've come to a point where efficiency is actually the human value that we're focused on mm. and not as a conduit to something else that's human-based. Right. Right. And so this book actually divided our book club. Some people didn't even finish it. I think some people found the book disturbing. Oh. Some found that because there was this machine-like human in between, they didn't care about him as much as they did about the other characters. So all of a sudden, the emotional attachment to the story wasn't there for them. Okay, so Miriam, I forgot. I forgot to, um, we, we got so excited talking about um, the books that we forgot to talk about the apps and podcasts you like or the um, shows you like. So quickly, um, you like a podcast called The Plays the Thing. What's that? So The Plays the Thing, it's basically um, focused on Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. And they take, they pick apart the plays, tell you about the characters, tell you about the some of the double meaning in the plays, what the author's trying to say, what the interaction between the characters might be, and what general themes you can take from each one. And usually what it does is there are six episodes for each play. So five, one for each act and then one Q&A episode at the end. And I mean, I like it because I'm a Shakespeare absolute nut. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it was the one author, I think, that made me really fall in love with the English language. Because it's, it's just as a little background, I grew up in a 100% Francophone household, yeah. went to a French school, and our English classes were divided up in three levels. So there was the Francophone group, the advanced Francophone, and then the Anglophone group. Yeah. And so I started in the Francophone group and then by grade eight, I had made it to the Anglophone group. And it's that year that a crazy teacher who was this American draft dodger. Oh, you told me about him before. Who, oh yeah, Mr. P, Mr. Peterson. I will always remember that teacher. And he was absolutely brilliant, totally terrifying, but he was so passionate about language and about literature that it was absolutely infectious. And that's when I really started paying attention to English works and Shakespeare was one of the ones that we studied and it continued on in grade nine and that was it, I was hooked. So that's why I like that podcast. Is this is this approachable if you're not like, do you have to be hardcore into Shakespeare? Or would you, you know what? I think that it's actually great for people who are not hardcore. Just okay. because they have usually for each show maybe an author, a teacher, and then maybe an actor. And then they'll read out some of the scenes, they'll pick it apart, and then they'll try to make it relatable to everyday life. Okay. So I actually think that if somebody has read a play and thought, you know, I kind of get the gist of it, but I'm not really sure, I kind of got lost in the language, well, they'll take care of that in that podcast. And they'll say, well, this is why he'll say this this way or 
this is what it actually means. So the next book, there's a, there's, you like docu-series and um, you mentioned one called Abstract, The Art of Design on Netflix. So tell me, tell us about that. So that's a great one. I mean, I'm really into docu-series, which seems to be like we were saying before a Netflix thing. It's, they don't have a lot of episodes, but each one has something different to offer. And in this case, it basically focuses on artists. And the reason I locked onto it is that I was viewing a documentary on Bjark Engels, who's a um, Scandinavian architect. Yeah. And he's done works all over the world. And one of the episodes was on him. So that was the first one that I watched. And I thought, oh, I wonder what else they have in there. And then I saw another really great episode on Paula Scher, who's a graphic designer. And what I loved about it, and you would like it too, because you work in, with magazines, is she is the queen of typefaces. Oh, okay. Her choices are incredible. And she's done tons of uh, album covers. She worked for record companies and she's done a lot of iconic album covers. So it was just interesting to hear her talk about her obsession with fonts and font sizes and typesetting, white space, all that stuff that people who love graphic design would enjoy. Thank you so much for joining. And um, I I hope you'll come back next season. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Amy. It was great to talk to you to get actually to take the time. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much to our guest, Miriam, for joining us today. And I learned a lot, like I do anytime I hang out with Miriam. And on a personal note, it was fun because I haven't seen her in person since the pandemic. So even though we were just on Zoom today, um, felt like I had a good catch-up. Anyway, I want to invite you back in another week to join me and book blogger Susan Matheson. She's going to be back on the podcast to talk about uh, what she's looking forward to reading this summer. Thank you very much, and